Uh, Walker. Okay. Yeah. He's the only one who teaches it. That's right. I forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Just wait till you take P chem. What? Just wait till you take P chem. What's P chem? Physical chemistry. Oh. It's physics and chemistry. I'm not going to take that. That sounds fun. Physics. No. Physics C this year has shown me I am not. How I don't want to do physics C. Yeah. PCAM is 90% matrices anyways. Matrices? Yeah. Oh, wait. That's fine then. Oh, yeah, let me see. Okay. So what are we talking about today for the podcast? What are we talking what are we about? Talking about? <laughs> um, well, we had a couple ideas. At first, it was just for the... Um, the court, the court cases and like affirmative action. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sahana wanted to go off topic. Let's just do affirmative action. So let's, let's do no, no, let's now. go. We can go off topic. Yeah, we can absolutely go off topic too. Okay. Yeah. We can start off with this. And we then can we'll, start yeah. and see where. And then we'll, we'll just figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No are one listens to. Are, are we recording? Recording? Yes. Okay, yes. Cool. No one listens to this anyways. It's just for our it's, interest. It's for, it's for our enjoyment. We're basically just interested. Yeah. I wrote about it in my regular for both of you guys. Okay. Oh my god, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I mean, we tried to show it during ethnic studies, but I don't think anyone was interested. Yeah, no one. We were. It was just us <laughs> ranting was, for like was, fifty minutes about excited the, and about the okay. caste system. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. only white people take ethnic studies as a blow-off class. Isn't that such an, a great indictment of ethnic <laughs> studies that white people take it as a blow-off class? Yeah. It's, it's just like the, the layers. The layers. It is surprisingly diverse, though. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's the thing, right? Because people of color will take ethnic studies yeah. mm -hmm. and be like, oh, this is going to be a really great class. I'm going to exactly. learn about world cultures. I'm going to feel like more connected to my culture and the world. And then. And then yeah. And then there's the other, yeah. the other group. Yeah. It was, we were really excited about offering it in conjunction with Facing History and in conjunction yeah. with our um, critical race theory class that we were going to offer. Like, oh, interesting. Oh, children, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, wait, is it, I heard about, like, on the news, like, so not allowing that. We were offering, we were going to do this thing that was mandatory for every single student to take, but it was non-graded. It was a mandatory non-graded class at LASA that was going to be available for starting in sophomore year, I want to say. Uh, basically, CRT, teaching critical race theory to children, teaching children about redlining in Austin, and like how CRT, how we can unpack racism in Austin and systemic racism, and talking about that. That's and we came so up with this cool. whole curriculum in 2020. We were discussing like where things were going to go, how things were going to work, and then like all this shit right. happened with oh, CRT. Oh, 2020, so like really recent. Yeah. Wow. Because we were, we were, we'd been like there had been inklings about it, but then you know. The Black Lives Matter protests really kicked it in the 12th gear. And we were like, we need to respond to this in some way because yeah. kids are responding to this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this was our idea for it. Was that we were going to implement this whole curriculum and every single teacher was going to get training on it. And every single staff member, counselors and everyone was going to have to teach this class. And there was a lot of people who were nervous. There's a lot of people who had pushback and ideas and different ways to do it. And we had this incredible team and just this huge thing that was going to happen. And then it just didn't happen. That's so I never heard of this. Yeah. 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 Most, I mean, because it, it was, like I said, it was two years ago, so you guys would have been fresh. No, no, sophomores. sophomores. Maybe sophomores. So, I mean, there's a lot that happened, obviously, since 2020. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was this really ambitious plan. And, it, and like, the idea was that it was going to align with facing history and align with ethnic studies. And oh, that, so cool. you know, the idea was that it, we'd meet for 30 minutes every other week, but that the discussions would start rippling out through other classes. So history would also become about the history of chemistry and the contributions that black and Arabic chemists made to the field, right? Yeah. And things like that. That's oh, wait, so that, cool. I love 
that. Let's actually. do that instead of advisory. <laughs> Let's do that. Why? That's such. That's so much better. That's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, advisory is just us going through the slides and not going through the slides. <laughs> Our yeah. teacher makes us go through slides. Who's your teacher? Yeah, it's it was supposed to be so much more. It yeah. really was. And every year, you know, Stacia tries to give this big rah 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 about what advisory is going to be, and just didn't work. Hey, man, you gotta you gotta go around. You gotta go on the other side because they're making people sign in. Thanks, buddy. Um, yeah, and it just never it always falls flat because teachers are just dead, right? Yeah. And like you can barely do the bare minimum right now. So which is understandable. Like it's it not is. their fault. It, it is, but it's also like. There's no clear. There's never been any clear vision of what advisory is supposed to be, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Stacia comes out. Stacia is very much the ideas person, the big scale person, not the nitty gritty detail person. Yeah. And so the implementation never gets followed upon because who who do we assign to be in charge of advisory, right? Every single AP is swamped, like the to, to like to the point where they're trying to pass off other uh, things to teachers yeah. and like department heads. So, anyways. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, affirmative action. Affirmative action. Yes. Okay. So, thoughts. So let's let's unpack. What I told you not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> she goes thoughts. Yeah. Thoughts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Affirmative action. We are in favor of affirmative action. Yes, we it are. exists for a reason. Yes, we are. We are in favor. So the Supreme Court case that's going on right now. It's a it's a joint suit between of, 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 from students for fair, fair admissions, admissions. Uh, suing both Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill, um, really the UNC system yeah. as a whole. But tar but like the main case is against Chapel Hill. Um, their argument is that affirmative action negatively discriminates against white students and Asian American students. Uh, the argument being that Harvard sets quotas, UNC ch sets quotas that. Um, Basically, it create like it creates this negative bias towards Asian Americans, yeah. which is not like they're they're not entirely wrong, right? Harvard has used quotas in the past, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that admissions, you know, offices set a higher bar for Asian American students, whether intentionally or unintentionally, mm -hmm. right? Because of the model minority stereotype, meaning we are only capable of succeeding. We are the model minority. Yeah. We're the best minority, right? Um, which is just not true, but we, we, we get things wrong and screw things up just as much as everybody else, yeah. right? Um, the argument is uh, backed by several wealthy conservative agencies and organizations, um, including lobbyists, private companies, weird private individuals are throwing money at this case. It's a really shocking list. Like, basically half of the people who fund the Republican National Conference also were funding students for fair admissions. It's very, very strange to see how, like, how, like who Asian Americans have thrown their lot in with, right? It's like, th these are the people? Yeah. These are the people whose values do not align with you in any way, except when it comes to this, when it comes to school. Right? Fun fact, did you know that there's a LASA student who wrote an amicus brief? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course there is. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, he wrote it for like some professor at George Mason. Um, and so, yeah, for student for fair admission, yeah. We have conservative students here, right? Like, it's not a surprise to some people, but I think it's it's surprising to just sort of like, when, you, when you're presented with proof of that in the wild, right? Yeah. Like, there's a kid sitting in here wearing a MAGA hat today. You know? I wasn't pointing at you, because it was you. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was pointing over there. Yeah. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> 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 
but it is it does come up right like I've seen I've had students I've had parents come up and ask me can you find conservative colleges in my kids too can you find colleges that aren't woke interesting you know that's interesting because usually we think of colleges as very liberal. Yeah, higher right. education tends to. Yeah, because there, there and there are schools that tend more conservative or like have a more strict bias on one side or the other, uh, or not. But by and large, colleges are liberal places because young people are progressive and liberal individuals. There are exemptions to every rule, right? Religious colleges almost always tend to the more conservative, oh. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's one college somewhere in Indiana, I think that has really strong connections with DC. It's very classics focused. It's about teaching like the old white men way of thinking. And so it obviously it teaches more conservative men too. Yeah. Um, and then there are some universities and schools that have more connections there too. But, uh, ba- yeah, basically yeah, that's the argument, right? That affirmative action discriminates against these people. And so they're, what they're arguing that, I was reading some of the first day arguments um, which are hilarious. Yeah, me. they're so funny. Oh my god! So <laughs> we had to listen to them. In. Did yeah, you hear them uh-huh. trying to make the distinction between race and culture? Yeah, 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 yeah. And every single judge was like, "Well, isn't race and culture the same thing?" No. Right? Yeah. Or like, or like, isn't like not isn't race and culture the same thing? But even more parsing it out, like, well, you can't. They're, they're not the same thing. But trying to make the argument that ra- like culture creates different standards than race doesn't work yeah. right because like applying different cultural standards is the same as applying different racial standards right it doesn't change anything you're yeah. just changing the labels you're like you're creating loopholes for colleges to exploit later yes um, I was reading uh, how the the lawyers for SFFA were panicky and just not doing their job despite having gone to the Supreme Court before yeah. on other things and the Supreme Court judges were like we're not trying to bully you into a corner or anything you know, but, sure. they, but they were just like, they're not, I mean, they're not this, it's day one. They're just asking questions. They're trying to get arguments out. Um, and these freaking like attorneys are just like, ah, I don't have my shit together. <laughs> it was funny. Um, the per- I would re- I was reading the reporting from someone who was in the courtroom. She was the first Asian American woman at Harvard and Harvard Law and to graduate oh. from Harvard Law School. Um, and she was in the courtroom that day. And she was sort of like talking about her feelings, talking about the writings. Um, and it's interesting in a lot of ways. Hi, Jamie. Right, bye, Jamie. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> you too. Um, it was interesting. She was, ta- she was talking about how historically Asians have been demonized in U.S. law, mm-hmm. right? When we're talking about the Anti-Immigration Exclusion Act or the Chinese American Exclusion Act, um, when we're talking about Japanese internment, you know, after Pearl Harbor, um, other situations like there was there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of stories if not hundreds of stories mm-hmm. of how the government has looked at Asian Americans differently over the years uh, and discriminated in different ways too um, I mean think about it 200 years ago Chinese women were capped in coming into this country mm-hmm. because they be- they it was believed that most Chinese women coming to this country were prostitutes yeah uh, and now like Chinese women are getting discrim- like, are, like, are discriminated against in, a, in university admissions from most selective schools in the country, right? We've like flipped, we've completely flipped the discrimination argument. They can't, they can't be here because they have low morals and they're machine-like. Well, they, they can't get into colleges because they're too smart. <laughs> it was completely, t- 200 years, still discrimination, but from the opposite side. Yeah. Very strange. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting case. 
I don't know what the ultimate ruling is going to be because this is not the first affirmative action challenge right. for higher ed. Um, we've had several in the past, either at Harvard or at UT Law. Right. Right. Um, and they are always messy. You know, they're always, it's a lot of really messy language and a lot of really poorly defined things because yeah. admissions offices are supposed to be, you know, black boxes, right? No one is really supposed to know how they work because if they do, well, then you can game the system. And we've seen examples of gaming the system with admission scandals in years right. previous, right? Um, and so opening a lens into that world has consequences, is risky, um, and requires everyone to suddenly change what they're doing as well. Because like, well, now that they know, now that the cat's out of the bag, we gotta change. Um, and it's changed for the wrong reasons, right? Isn't that the worst thing? We want admissions office to change in the direction of we need to build a more diverse population. We need to like invite more people into our school. We need to change because the rules that we played by 100 years ago don't apply now. Mm -hmm. Not, we need to change our rules because, you know, we've been exposed. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also how like anything gets done in this country, right? No one, no institution or bureaucracy gets anything done for the people unless you drag them to court over it. That was a very long rant. So yeah. I, hope, I hope it was helpful. Very helpful. Okay. Um, Context. Exactly. <laughs> um, would you say that um, the how long have you been in the college? In the college business. Yeah. I started working at Texas State as an admissions counselor in 2015. So this is my seventh year in the business. Well, this is my. Well, you could look at it this way. This is my seventh cycle of admissions. Right. Right. Um, so would you say that affirmative action has ever really influenced the way that you like interact with students about the process? It's a great question. When I worked at Texas State, it didn't because our admission rate was pretty generous. Mm -hmm. we were in rec we're a nationally recognized Hispanic serving institution, so we like part of our mandate to recruit aggressively and keep a really high population of Hispanic students. Mm -hmm. That's our goal. Um, and that's what, something I really liked about Texas State is that that was, that was a cool thing to be able to talk about. Um, here, I will say that it, it not, maybe not affirmative action, but probably discriminatory admissions practices are definitely something I try to share with my students. Mm -hmm. For example, if I have a student who's interested in an Ivy League school, one thing I'll always tell them is that for the, there's data published out there that Ivy League schools have a pretty hefty discriminatory bias. In the last 100 years, 30% of that school's incoming class has come from the same 100 high schools in this country. Your Phillips Exeters, your elite private academies, schools like Lhasa. Right. Not that Lhasa is included in that count, unfortunately. But what that tells us is that if 30% of their population is coming from those same 100 schools, well then look at those 100 schools, right? Mm -hmm. Those schools are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly wealthy, overwhelmingly private, overwhelmingly legacy as well. Yeah. 30%, and that's an average based on all six Ivies. There are gonna be Ivies that that's higher for or lower for, right? So that's one way I try to have that conversation and identify it is that you are going to have a harder battle because you are not coming from those 100 schools. That's not necessarily about affirmative action itself specifically. Right. Like I'm not gonna tell a black student you have a better chance of getting into UT because you're black. Sure. Right, because that's not true. Yeah. Everyone, everyone has to reach for everybody, yeah. right? Yes, UT has a, has a responsibility and part of its mandate to recruit more black students. Mm -hmm. Everyone does. Lhasa has that in our own mandate too, right? But that doesn't mean we favor them in admissions any differently. Um, it's one of the weirdest and trickiest parts of the college game. You, hey, you, you want to be 
fair, right? But affirmative action means being fair with a mind to who's been underrepresented and marginalized, right? So if two candidates are exactly the same, and the only distinction between the one is that one is black and one is white, right? What is the weight that we put on that? How, do, how is that valued? And how do we make that claim? And that's part of the negotiation and language around this. So some colleges will say, well, we'll take into consideration you know, mitigating factors that might have come up because of the race and look for things in their essays and short answers if they address that. Like, yes, my family was discriminated against or we come from a lower income background. So we know lower income black family has had to deal with and go through more hurdles to get to that point. So let's take it. So that definitely adds a lot in their favor in a read. Um, whereas, you know, maybe a wealthier black student may not get that same kind of point value system, right? Or take it from the opposite tack. This, there are some admissions offices where they, they, they're purely race blind. It's becoming less and less common, mm -hmm. but they, they are purely race blind, and because they're a small enough school, this, the population that they happen to admit leans more you know, one way or the other, or it uh, ends up being more diverse just by virtue of the applicant pool that they get, um, like HBCUs, for example. Right? HBCUs can safely say that they're race blind in mm -hmm. many cases, right? because that's the bulk of the population that they're coming in with. Sure. Um, but race blindness also has its own problems, right? Because then you're not taking into consideration the historical marginalization of these communities. Right. Um, it was complicated. Like, it's really, really messy. That's why I don't talk about it with students, because I don't want them feeling like your race is hamstringing you. Yeah. I have students who will talk about it to me, though. And you know who it is almost always? White students. Mm -hmm. White students will almost always come and tell me, well, I feel like I have a harder time, a chance of getting into school because I'm white. When almost always the opposite is true. Say we were a purely race-blind admissions office. Say that we were purely a meritocratous admissions office, meaning it was just on your GPA and just on your test scores, and it was just on the, the, the academic value that you could bring to an institution, right? Every single LASA student would want that, right. <laughs> regardless of race, because you're all like, oh, yes, we got this. You know what I mean? Don't look at my essay. Just don't look at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, what data and statistical modeling shows us is that if colleges adopt that mindset, they become overwhelmingly white without regard to any other minority. That even, that's right. even including Asian Americans. Even a purely meritocratic system, like schools become less diverse and they become less socioeconomic diverse too because there's a direct correlation between high GPA and high test scores to high income, right? Mm -hmm. If you have the money, you can afford private tutoring. You can afford, you know, test, like a test prep yeah. and stuff like that. And you have time test prep beyond that too um, and colleges know that that's the thing right so they know they can't they know that they cannot be purely merit-based in that process it's the same thing for scholarships right yeah. uh, other side note scholarships have also been getting like a little tricky about it now too because they've been just as there are, there's admission scandals, there's also financial aid scandals. I'm sure. Yeah. But the same, the same logic applies to scholarships, right? You want to make sure that the right student gets the right money. You want to make sure that the, the most deserving people who has the mo have the most need get the most money. That's why we also see colleges moving to 100% need-based aid. Yeah. Right? So if the cost of the college is 60000 your like, demonstrated family need is 40000 then you're expected to pay twenty, but the college will make up the, the rest, mm -hmm. right? 
but financial aid offices are notoriously bad at taking into account race in this process, right? Your ability to earn as a person of color mitigates, is mitigated right. in some ways. It's, it's, there's, there's limits on it. Um, and unfortunately, that comes with scholarships too. Uh, it, this is always part of the backdrop of a college conversation and part of the um, list. The biggest thing I will say students and young people have on their side is that there's a lot of you, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a lot of you applying and colleges have to accept more students because you know they not, know not everyone's gonna be able to come, they know right. not everyone's gonna be able to afford it. So there is an onus to accept more people. So everyone, everyone has a shot. At the end of the day, everyone still has a shot. Um, it just comes down to like, how do you market yourself best? How do you sell yourself best? How do you position yourself best to be the right fit for the right schools? And just doing the research. There are 4,000 colleges out there. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very long answer to your question. I'm sorry. The long answers are great. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I don't have any more questions about affirmative action. Okay. Um, oh, you have something? I, I was just going to keep asking. Go ahead. Okay. Um, do you think there's a way to, like, when you talk about the like really exclusive elite institutions. Do you think there's a way that moving forward, the kind of elitism and um, like historical discrimination that's been happening, do you think there's a way to, um, I guess, remedy it going forward? Or do you think that's, that's really not question. really in the realm of possibility as long as you're still elite? You got to look at it from a case by case basis because there are some elite colleges that have gotten really, really good at pitch at ditching that narrative. Dartmouth is a great example. Dartmouth has one of the most like, like part of the part of the solution is addressing who is the person picking the students, mm -hmm. right? Dartmouth's admissions office is one of the most diverse in the country. Really? The head of admissions is this queer half Puerto Rican, half Filipino, half Black person. He's he's a good friend of mine too, uh, and. He's a cool dude, he's a really, really cool dude. And he said the biggest thing we read is the essays. The test scores, the GPA, don't matter to us. Yes, they matter in the sense of what we publish in our data, right. but in, a, in terms of who gets in, in terms of the actual reading process, the essay and the short answer are everything to us. Mm -hmm. Because the writing ability at Dartmouth is how you get to distinguish between students. And the ability to tell a good story is what they look for in those essays. So. Dartmouth ends up having a, has had a better track record of trying to stay more diverse because of that. The flip side, of course, of that is that Dartmouth is in New Hampshire, and not a lot of people of color want to go to you know New Hampshire. Yeah, right. It is a very democratic leaning state. It is a very progressive and liberal state. It also has a lot of white people, and it also has a fairly sizable Republican population too. Yeah. Especially if we look at the midterms. Um, so. That's the thing, right? Dartmouth isn't struggling necessarily with accepting more students of color as much as it is attracting more right. students of color, right? Because they don't want to be where they don't find their own people, many of them at least. Yeah. You know, I sent a Mexican kid two years ago to the frozen north of Canada. Not just Canada, Nova Scotia. Not just Nova Scotia, a tiny town on the northern tip of Nova Scotia. He has not seen the sun for nine months. Oh, wow. Like, <laughs> And he loves it. He's having the time of his life. But the biggest thing, the biggest thing he struggles with is that there's no one else like him up there. Yeah. You know, the Hispanic or Latinx community up there is not Mexican, mm -hmm. right? They're the Dominican or Cuban or Puerto Rican, or they're just, there's enough of a cultural difference that he has a hard time finding people like him. 
And I don't know if that's gotten easier or not for him. I hope it has. I yeah. hope that like he found ways to negotiate it. But that's the he everything else with the university he loves enough. That's why he's staying. Um, but that's something that I think is part of the solution and part of the problem, right? Universities can, by changing the demographics who works in that office, right, change what they read for and change what they find value in, mm -hmm. right? At the same time, you can't change where you're located. You can't relocate a whole school. Right. Although we did, but. <laughs> um, yeah. It's harder. It's harder. Other, there have been other solutions that have been discussed too. I think one, one of the ones that I'm more fond of is recognizing that there's value in all 4,000 colleges in this country, not mm -hmm. just the top 100. Yeah. Um, and most people get that. The vast majority of the country understands that. The problem is when you look at schools like Lhasa, right? Yeah. Because Lhasa students, myself included as a former Lhasa student, have myopia when it comes to colleges. They tend to focus on the same 100 schools every single year. And it creates an intergenerational problem where the juniors will say, okay, well that person applied there, so I should also apply there, right? They keep, it keeps scaling up. And I will say your class is doing a phenomenal job. Yes, there are a lot of people applying to too many colleges or colleges that everyone's applying to or colleges that are just really hard to get into, but there's just, I would, I would argue that there are just as many students this year who are applying to anywhere from one to five colleges that I've never heard of, mm -hmm. which is a huge deal. Yeah. We're applying to one to five colleges that we've never sent applications to. And we're doing phenomenal. Lee Rip just got accepted to Susquehanna in like about an hour outside of Philadelphia. They're giving her a $39,000 a year scholarship. It's gonna, wow. She's gonna go to college for less than $10,000 a year. Wow. Yeah, on one, off one scholarship. So, but we're seeing that, you know what I mean? We're, we're starting to see that shift happen. Yeah. Um, but it's also one of those things where I'm not confident that that shift stays, yeah. right? Because it's year by year, every class does different things. And loss is getting bigger. Yeah. The sophomore class is what, 395? Something like that? Like over, like over 400. Yeah, yeah. Crazy, yeah. So every class is gonna be different. Every class looks at different things, but it is cool to see that trend happening for this year. Um, yeah, about talking about like elitism, do you think, yeah. I think one way that I think like, at least for Lawson, I don't know about higher ed, but um, I think a big thing was like accepting everyone who applies. I think Ms. Crimsey once said she wants that. So like, yeah, so that Lawson, I mean, it will still have the resources that are more than other schools, but at the same time, like, it won't be like, oh, it's like, oh, I don't know where this, it's not like, the application process is like a formality almost, but mm. but like more students have an opportunity to go and yeah, just anyone who wants to go can actually come here and see if it's good for them or go back to their home school. Yeah, yeah. that's a good, that's a really good point. And I, I think that's a really commendable dream that we have that anyone who wants to come here can come here. And that's, I think where we're headed. Our admissions percentage for LASA is between 60 and 70% mm -hmm. in a given year, which is pretty, pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, when you consider the fact, too, that if we want to get bigger, that rate has to go up, yeah. right? Um, if we admit 700 people, that's what we need to admit for a class of 400. 300 of those kids are not going to come. Mm -hmm. um, part of it is also the stigma around switching schools, right? Yeah. So many people get scared or nervous of switching high schools. What am I going to do? How am I going to make friends? All my friends are here. This is such a long commute. My family can't like, drive and pick me up. This school has a better swim team. This school has a better robotics team. This school has this. This school has that. 
and then trying to just figure out how to be like there are people who come in sophomore or junior year who aren't graduating with that magnet endorsement and start scratching the head like well then why the hell am I here mm-hmm. but the magnet endorsement isn't the reason you come to Lhasa necessarily right, right? Yeah. no one no one really cares about it I'm yeah. sorry um, yeah. it's that that stigma is harder to shift the stigma of switching schools mm-hmm. because that's really how you how you make that happen make that dream happen where we can accept everybody right because then if they're not worried about switching schools then yeah come here try it and see how you feel yeah yeah, yeah that stigma around also like if, like while i was at like recruiting to middle schools mm-hmm. there are a lot of comments like oh yeah the sports team suck i'm not going there so i can see that yeah yeah, yeah. for sure yeah. just as there is the same discussion around college I had students not apply to schools because they didn't have a football team. Which is like, it's a weird thing to say, but it's also not, right? Yeah. It's also like, it's like, no, that makes sense. That's not what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess I wanted to ask about Lhasa's, like on the vein of Lhasa's admissions policy, I know that Lhasa has its own version of an affirmative action policy, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you think about that in relation to I guess what you've seen in colleges, do you think that it's, and especially in your experience at LASA, both as a student and now working here, right. do you think that has changed LASA's dynamic and do you think it impacts the way that LASA students eventually approach the college process? It's definitely changed LASA's dynamic. Yeah. Um, for the better, I will say, for, for the better. Being here, you know, I, when I was at LASA, the graduating class was 125 and it was tiny, and it was majority white and Asian, and LBJ was always majority Latin and black. Mm-hmm. The difference was LBJ students, like the, school, the two schools weren't separated. Right. LBJ students could take lots of classes, lots of students could take LBJ classes. Just because I was in a super advanced curriculum didn't mean I want every single AP, mm-hmm. right? There was a chance for me to even take classes that were regular weight, not honors, so I could balance my schedule. And it created a very neat and hybridized environment yeah. where LBJ students could find different ways to challenge themselves, take classes that were more interesting to them, and everybody was better for it in that mm-hmm. way. We were a lot more integrated in that way. Um, and it felt more like a community college environment, right? Where there's different levels, different weights, different communities interacting in the same space to create something new. Um, what LASA has turned into now is that it's definitely more of a small or large college environment, mm-hmm. right? where we're weird and quirky and we have weird and quirky classes and weird and quirky students. Um, Stacia's mandate in regards to what you're saying about affirmative action is that LASA try to match, LASA should try to match Austin's demographics, mm-hmm. not AISD's demographics, yeah. which is where we are, right? It's why we are kind of majority white and Asian because, AI, because Austin is moving to be majority white and Asian. Mm-hmm. Poor, uh, poor communities of Latinx and blacks people are moving out of Austin, they're right. leaving Austin and not a lot of them are coming in. So that's sort of how our numbers are lining up too. This is good and bad for different reasons, right? Bad for obvious reasons, right? We have a less diverse community. Mm -hmm. Good in the sense that we're meeting our mandate, right? Our goal is to match the Austin community in that way. And that matters, I guess, because it makes us more representative of the community and it sort of keeps us in touch there. And as LASA grows, right, it opens up more doors to be more representative Mm -hmm. and try to bring more people. there have been challenges, right? There have definitely been Latin students who've been told, your only reason you're here is because we tried to make the school more diverse. Yeah. There, I mean, like the Latin, Black and Latinx Student Union exists for a reason, mm-hmm. right? I think 
one thing that counselors and admin are kind of working on right now are trying to find more initiatives to help people not just feel like they belong here, but give them tools to succeed here and do well here. Yeah. Because if you're not coming in from healing or, full, or lively in some cases, you don't know how to take Cornell notes. That's not something that they teach you in a regular middle school. You don't know how to, like the academic jargon that some of these freshman teachers or even sophomore teachers are using is not jargon that you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. Whereas other students are sort of picking it up, right? It's not just the workload, it's what it's like being here. The experience of being here has in some ways become codified and regimented and cemented yeah. in one way. So when we bring in new staff, right, who are the students who are com complaining about the new teachers? It's the Keeling students. It's the students who are used to things being done a certain way and succeeding because things have been done a certain way. So when a different teacher comes along and teaches them something different, look, uh-oh, time to kick up some shit, right? right? And that's, and, but we, you almost never hear a student who came from a non-magnet middle school complaining about that. That's really interesting. Yeah. So part of what we're trying to work on is how can we give them more tools to succeed? How can we give them sort of odd opportunities? And the, the, the really, the, the obvious answer is AVID. Every other high school has AVID, why don't we? Yeah. And Stacey's principle has always been we don't need it because lots of students are college ready when that's just very much not true. Even even every, after the pandemic, no one is really college ready, right? We're all just going yeah. to see what happens. The whole class is in no chemistry, so. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> no chemistry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but look, we, we desperately need AVID because AVID stands for, oh God, hang on, I get there. Advancement via individual determination. And it's not just about college readiness as much as it is, here's how you take Cornell notes. Here's how you use the library. Here's how you ask a question to a teacher. It's the basic, simple things. Yeah. And the idea that AVID is just for black and Latinx students is ridiculous. Yeah. It's for anyone who wants it. It's for anyone who feels like they need a little help. It's for anyone who feels like they could benefit from learning these things. Yeah. Like it's more than how to be an adult, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just how to be a loss of student. And we don't have that kind of class here. Like coming from a non, come from not killing. Yeah, I can definitely, because at Garitsky, we didn't use the library. Yeah. We didn't like, we didn't take notes. It was just pretty much like coasting through it, doing just extracurriculars, sleeping. Actually, when I when I visited Garitsky, again, due to like recruiting. Recruiting, yeah. Yeah, um, I met some of my older teachers and, and yeah, I, I was surprised by like, oh, this is where I was. Wow, we didn't study at all. And so I don't know, it's like, yeah, definitely that jump from there into, into Lhasa where you like side tag and then things like, yeah. <laughs> and like, and like, I think the first, like, the first assignment we have in English, freshman English, is like 20 essays. Like, oh, yeah, 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 like yeah. 10 whole essays. I was like, how do you do all this yeah, work? Yeah. How do you plan yourself out? Yeah, that's not something I had, I knew anything about. But yeah, definitely agree that would be helpful. Yeah. So it's just an, it's an uphill battle. We're, we're dealing with budget constraints, we're dealing with teacher hiring issues, we're dealing with growing the school. It's, one, it's like one more class we've got to figure out how to offer. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the logic st the stands that if we can figure out how to offer linear algebra, we should also figure out how to offer AVID, right? Yeah. Like, we can't just assume that everyone comes here knowing how to do this. Yeah. We can't. And we can't assume that freshman year is enough for them to figure out how to do it. I think going forward, I always love reading applications. One of my one of the things I get to do here is I get to read applications for students mm -hmm. who are coming in, um, and I always love doing it. I 
I would really I like the way that we have changed our props consistently. We've changed the way we read and like the, the questions that we ask yeah. students because it's really given us lenses into different pe parts of people's lives. Um, the creative sample especially has given us really really cool looks into people's lives, yeah. and that's helped I think in many ways determine who's going to be a good fit here, who's going to do well here. But more than that, like who belongs in that truest sense of affirmative action, the truest sense of building a more diverse and respectful, responsible community. Um, that's really helped. I had one question. It's, yeah. not really, it's not really about this, but that's okay. I know you said like you want students in general, especially from Wausau, to understand the value of all 4,000 colleges. Um, what are some of your favorite colleges that not many Wausau students apply to? Oh, man. Okay. Really and like why? Yes. This, yeah. is a, this is a great question. Okay. Let's start with the big one. St. John's. Oh, yes. St. John's. Yes. <laughs> we love St. John's. St. John's has two campuses, one in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe. Um, both are beautiful. They're both breathtaking in their own ways. The biggest thing is that St. John's is all about a great books curriculum, meaning that from freshman year to senior year, you are not doing anything other than reading the 50 books that they've given you, but you're not reading them in their modern translation. You're reading the original source material. And you were like, your first year is reading all the Greeks and learning how to translate ancient Greeks. By senior year, you have learned how to read Mandarin, Sanskrit, and three different other Indo-European languages wow. on top of that. And you're translating every single major work from every single region across the world. There are no majors at this place. Yeah. Everyone is in seminar-style classes. No classroom is bigger than 25 students. The entire population of the school is less than 3,000 people. Tuition is capped at $30,000 a year and is never going to increase. It is an insanely cool school. And if you're an engineering person or someone who's more STEM-oriented and you, you're not finding that like the classes here are giving you the technical learning that you want, St. John's gives you academic dispensation to go to another college for a year pay the same tuition rate you would have paid at St. John's and take all the STEM classes that you want. Ooh, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, and then just come back. Because there are labs at St. John's. There are, there's like STEM stuff. They're building and growing that space. Um, but they also recognize that that's not what they're strongest at. So they give students leave an opportunity to go find those things. It's a really, really cool school. So cool. Yeah, I, I am blown away every time. Um, so that's, that's a big one. Um, I really liked Smith. Smith is one of my, Smith is such a tough school to get into. Like it is, of the women's colleges in the country, it's really, it's like Smith, Bryn Mawr, and Barnard are the th three hardest to get into. I love Smith. Smith is so cool. It's so cool. It is so freaking cool. Like I got to visit Smith and Mount Holyoke back to back. And I like Mount Holyoke. Mount Holyoke feels like just nice and like, oh, everyone's so sweet and cool here. But my, my, Smith is, was just, Smith was just like, Incredible! Every single part about that campus is so cool. the The dorms are all singles, but so if but if the if, you know the people get lonely, they open up the doors and pull the beds into the hallways, so everyone has one giant slumber party, uh, and like someone will like make tea on one end and pass it down. They're all friends with the cleaning staff across the campus, so people will little little notes and gifts for each other, and the cleaning staff will deliver it. But they'll also give notes and stuff to the cleaning staff. Cleaning staff help decorate the, like the dorms and everything, so it feels like a more cohesive community, right? It, it's more about like making and building relationships with them. Um, 
there's a huge sense of radicalness there too. I, I might have been telling you this at one point. Yeah. They got them to they got the entire university to divest its in, its investments away from fossil fuels by getting every single person on campus to sign a petition. The students, the faculty, the staff, the cleaning staff, the president, the board, every single person. They petitioned. They protested for two weeks, and they moved several billion, if not trillion, dollars of Smith's money away from fossil fuels. It's a big deal. Uh, really, really dramatically beautiful place. Um, what's some other colleges that I wish more people? Like, although that's one that like a lot of losses will apply to. Yeah. Let me let me think of one that not a loss, a lot of losses will apply to. Oh, here we go. Speaking of diversity and affirmative action, where do you guys think the most diverse college in the country is? You don't have to tell me what it is. Just tell me what state you think the most diverse college in the country is. My first instinct was New York, but I feel like that's wrong. It's a good guess. That's a yeah. really, really good guess, right? Like, I feel like, like maybe one of the like cities would be pretty diverse. I will, I will probably grant you that New York City probably has colleges with the m most number of countries and ethnicities represented, yeah. right? But that's not necessarily I, the same thing. I don't thing. think that's right. Like, yeah. that was my first instinct, so. I'm thinking California, but I don't... Is that right? California's a good guess. Yeah. It's close to California. University of Nevada, Las Vegas. You, Vegas. Yes. Interesting. In Las Vegas? In Las Vegas. Oh. University of Nevada, Las Vegas is the most diverse university in the country. Because well, it's got a very bizarre reason. If you are a student from Hawaii, you don't want to stay in Hawaii for college. Mm -hmm. You want to get out. California schools are really expensive and hard to get into. Yes. But California is beautiful and has a similar culture. What's really close to California? Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Las Vegas is less than an hour drive from LA. Mm -hmm. It's right there. That's where they go. So, oh, so very as a result, University of Nevada, Las Vegas has the most diverse population in the country. It's a wow. big state school, twenty to thirty thousand people. So both by in terms of per capita and in terms of number of different ethnicities represented, because Hawaii is a massive melting pot. Yeah. Everybody is either half Japanese, half Filipino, half this, half that, right on top of each other. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible place. I had friends who taught in the writing program there. It's got a really good graduate school. Uh, it's cheap. You're in a major U.S. city. People always think Vegas is just the casinos. It's really not. Almost every single major company, whether it's media, publishing, entertainment of any kind, has its offices in Las Vegas mm -hmm. because they put on shows, right? There's constantly shows and touring and musical acts. Of the, of the nine Cirque du Soleil acts that are around the country at any given time, seven of them are in Vegas. Wow. Yeah. It is a huge and important city. Uh, and so being able to like live and work there and being able to be a student there is a really unique and wonderful opportunity for many kids. So and we get, and no one will ever apply. Oh. Yeah. It's weird. No one I mean, I, I didn't know they had a university in Las Vegas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't really associate Las Vegas with university. With school. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where else is a school that I like that no one applies to? God, I normally have so many of these. Um... I really liked Union College in, in upstate New York. Oh, yeah. Union has got, I think it's, it's probably my favorite small college for engineering. It's got a really neat engineering, for, like you get particle accelerators to play with on your first year, which is fun. It's really, really fun. Engineering program is women-led. Half the faculty are women. Um, all the, like they have scholarships geared to get more women in engineering and STEM. 
Um, the engineering building is brand new and beautiful. They offer a lot of great internship and research support. Schenectady, where it's located, is a fun fun time to say. Schenectady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also uh, a, a more mid-sized city. So it's a lot of these places in New York, some of them are really small college towns, but some of them are really bigger cities that feel like somewhere in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of nice. It's kind of a neat feeling to feel like, yeah. oh, we're the, we're the cultural hub of this area. You know? <laughs> um, Union has really unique architecture, has really beautiful buildings. Um, they have a, you know how we have the signature courses here? Yeah. They have the, um, they, have, they have something that, that's similar to that. It's like a first year seminar experience. Um, but it's broken up over multiple courses that everyone is required to take, and they're completely redesigned them to all to be about social justice. Um, what was the other thing? Social justice and global culture, like global culture, global studies, and like they have pillars. They have very like four or five yeah. different like progressive pillars, liberal pillars of whatever kind that are integrated in every course, and they're all tech based too. So it's a lot of really weird and cool things integrated at once in your first two years. So it's like signature courses that we have here on steroids, basically. Yeah, and it's an engineering college, or? It is, it's, it is a small liberal arts college that also happens to have a really powerful engineering okay. program. Yeah. Most of the students that I met with were not in the engineering program. Most of them were in doing other liberal arts stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but there were students there from all over the world. That was really cool to see. Um, and I think we're having a couple of kids applying this year because I've been pushing it really aggressively. Like, gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> Um, where else? Oh, I always want more kids to apply abroad. We have a lot this year. We have a lot this year. But we, there's some really good schools outside of English-speaking countries that students should really consider. Yeah. Duke Kunshan, for example, in Shanghai. So Duke has a couple different campuses outside of uh, you know, North Carolina. But Duke Kunshan is not just another campus. It's its own fully functioning school. You, and the head of like, General Motors is, is now the head of that school. Um, it's in Shanghai, the most international city in China, so it's just an incredible place to live. Um, the campus is on this island, so you have like this huge private island for yourself to play on. Oh, wow. It has really insane labs, like the lab work that you can do in China is frightening. I bet. It's so cool. Um, all of their majors, they're not, it's not... Like, no single major is purely just that field. It's not computer science. It's computer science in this, like, weird specific niche. But every single niche is interdisciplinary. Every single major is built to be interdisciplinary and focused. Yeah. Plus, you can do two years at Duke Kunshan, two years at Duke in North Carolina, and get a degree from each school. So four years, you get two bachelor's degrees. Those are, there's another program, I think, Columbia I want the, the Trinity College of Oh, yeah. yeah that, was that one's a really good one. That one's, yeah. yeah. They have a math oh. one now, so. Yes, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Basically, like, that's, those are the things that I look for for students, really, is just, like, what are weird and cool things that people can take advantage of that are, for the right student, the best fit out there? And there's a million different colleges like that. There's, there's places like Warren Wilson College, where service is a huge part of the like, campus life. You're working 30 hours a week in addition to going to class. Wow. Like, yeah, like it's work culture is a big part of that. There's, um, there are, there's an all men's college of like 500 people in the middle of the woods somewhere that's all just focused on, focused on like humanism, poetry, and forestry. And it's just about like, yeah. <laughs> it's perfect for that. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Right? 
there's like there's a an all women's college called Sweetbriar in Georgia. Oh, I've heard of that one. Yeah. Sweetbriar. Sweetbriar. Sweetbriar is so cool. They will pay for you to fly out. Like they'll fully reimburse your flight. They'll take care of your hotel, just so you can come see the school. Really, really phenomenal place. Everyone there's so nice too. There's Barry College in Georgia, which has got two. It's the biggest land campus in the country. Two thousand acres. Wow. And but it, only 100 of those acres is like the actual campus. Yeah. So you got 2,000 acres of rivers, strikes, strikes, lakes, rivers, <laughs> lakes, forests, plains, fields. Just 200, 2,000 acres of wow. outdoors to wow. play around. What do they do with that? Just a frolic. frolic. They frolic. <laughs> they, frolic. <laughs> they have class outdoors. I mean, it's Georgia. Like the weather was pretty good, pretty much good year round. It's you know, so you can be outside all the time if you want. For students who really just want to be outside yeah. all the time, it's the it's the best place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm partial to my own school, on my alma mater, Allegheny College mm-hmm. in Meadville, Pennsylvania. I uh, I love it. I love the faculty so much. They really like. You have to really care about teaching right now to work in public education. You have to really care about teaching to work in a small liberal arts college an hour and a half away from any big cities. Mm-hmm. Right, it is. It is remote. There were black bears running around on campus my first week. Wow. Yeah, that's how remote we are. Um, at the same time, it's, it's breathtaking. Yeah. It's old red brick buildings. It's gigantic, tall trees. It's literally campus on a hill, so we can see for miles and miles around Crawford County. It's uh, it's a really special place. And winter is terrifying. Right, nine months of the year, no sun. It'll snow on graduation if you're unlucky. Um, but it does make you really close. Like when you can't leave because there's a blizzard, you make really good friends. Yeah. Right? <laughs> everyone just becomes, I'd imagine. Everyone is just forced to become really good friends. Like the, the number of people who don't like at the school goes from like very small to zero very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, it was, it's a wonderful place. Uh, my only access to grind against it is like they're just, they're changing things too quickly and they're changing, they're taking away a lot of the stuff that, so many people found value in. Like they just don't opt for Chinese anymore. They completely mm. gutted the Chinese curriculum. Because, and I think, that the, I'm not 100% sold on why, but the one Chinese professor they had left participated in some anti-Asian protests, or sorry, anti-Asian hate protests. Mm. And so then the college came to, which is a dumb reason to can someone. They're, they're upping their business school's budget, but they're cutting world languages. They're, they got rid of art history. It's like, what, what's, I'm not, I'm concerned for the future of the school because I'm like, what, what is the direction that we're shifting in? Yeah. Since when did business become part of the liberal arts? But sure. I digress. Um, my, my bread and butter, though, is small liberal arts colleges. I mean, you know this. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the best way to learn. I think that having a small, focused community is so nice and so wonderful. And the best part too is that there's still a range, right? There are small liberal arts colleges with 500 people, and there's small liberal arts colleges with 5,000 people, yeah. right? There's gonna be liberal arts colleges that are bigger than Lhasa is, and frankly, every liberal arts college is bigger than Lhasa, right. because we're just covering Austin. Liberal arts colleges bring in students from all across the world. And although this question's a bit obvious, but like, yeah. um, what do you think of this last question? Why do you think lots of students not want to try out these other colleges? Ooh. Yeah, good question. All right, so let's let's really place the blame where it lies, parents. Parents. Woo. Parents. <laughs> 90% of the problem is really parents. I didn't become a doctor, you have to become a doctor. I didn't apply to Harvard, 
I don't, I don't want, you don't to, you have to apply to Harvard, right? <laughs> it really, and like, the, the best part is when they come in and meet with me or Ms. Koshin, they act completely different, you know? They're just like, no, it's okay, we just want them to be happy, and then they get home, like, don't ever make me come into school again and talk to these people. It's a whole, whole I drama. I feel called out right now. Or, <laughs> you do? I feel... <laughs> oh, no, no, you're, I feel trust represented. me. You're, you feel represented. Right, you feel seen, you feel yeah. seen. Your mom is among, is on the tame side, I promise you. They're, oh, they're, I'm they're, aware. Yeah. I'm aware. Yeah. Because your mom, you can actually like, talk to and have a reasonable conversation with and like see like get her to see different arguments over time. Over time. It, it, that's the thing, right? Yeah. It's the overtime. Overtime. Whereas some of these parents, like the overtime for them has been the last 17 years oh, of their yeah. child's life drilling them. Yeah. This is how you're going to be. This is what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, and so we always forget that people change. Right? We always forget that people are supposed to change and what we want changes and that's supposed to change. Everything is supposed to change. Nothing is supposed to stay the same. If everything stayed the same, we would not have built skyscrapers, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's a big part of the problem, right? Is that parents limit their children's vision based on what they want. They're like the, the problem of living vicariously through their own kids. Mm-hmm. That's problem number one. Problem number two is we have an inflated sense of what the rankings actually are and what they actually mean. Mm-hmm. Number one engineering school, according to USA Today, is very different than the number one engineering school according to ABET, the, the program that you know accredits engineering schools. Mm-hmm. You know, ABET, yes, schools have to pay money to be accredited, but more than that, they have to be able to offer certain things. Mm-hmm. There's a minimum requirement for ABET in that way. And so ABET looks for schools that go beyond that minimum requirement who are able to offer even more to their students. So yeah, MIT might be the number one engineering school on both USA Today and ABET. The difference is, if MIT stops paying USA Today, they drop in the rankings. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they stop paying ABET, they just, they're not accredited anymore, that's it. They're still gonna be a great engineering school. Yeah. And the, the, with the lack of ability that we have to parse these rankings and actually do the research that matters in these, kills us every single time because and it's not because lots of students are bad at this and it's not because there's something deficient in this it's because the clock is against us yeah right you guys start thinking about college what junior year if that there are some lots of students who don't start thinking about college until the start of freshman year or sorry sorry start senior year <laughs> you know but and yes there are plenty of you guys who think about it from freshman year but you're not really like when you're 14 you're not thinking about college you're just like oh that looks cool right yeah you don't start seriously having those think those thoughts until later in life, um, and the the clock is also against you just in terms of being young, right? You got a whole life. Everyone keeps telling you, you got your whole life ahead of you, you got your whole life ahead of you, uh, and then you know then there's these deadlines and then these pressures and everything, and then suddenly it feels like life isn't ahead of you. It's right now, you know. Mm-hmm. Fighting the clock is really hard. It's just really really hard, and it's. You don't have the time to research. You don't have the time to dig. You just have the time to say, where are you applying? That sounds cool. Or that person that I don't like is applying somewhere. I know I'm smarter than they are, so I'm going to apply there and get in. Trust me, that happens. <laughs> yeah. It happens. There are kids who apply to a school for the meme. There are kids who apply. The meme. Yeah. Like, oh, the meme of applying to Harvard. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I get that. <laughs> right. Just so they can say that they did it. That's probably uh-huh. why they have such a low acceptance rate. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Um, it's part of it is that I think I want to I want to take a step back and acknowledge my own bias right this is what I do day in and day out this is what I'm confronted with day in and day out so I have very 
I can I get very angry about certain things or I get very persnickety about certain schools for certain reasons. Um, for example, BSMD programs. Mm. These are these are programs that are more selective than Ivy League schools. These are these are more selective than any school out there, mm. because out of hundreds of applicants, they'll accept two. You know, for arbitrary reasons. And I, I have so many axes to grind with them. Not just because of that, but the idea of marketing to a gifted and talented student, an accelerated program, like the value that they find, like the whole the whole reason that people like that is like, oh, I don't have to take the MCAT. Well, no, you test well. You shouldn't be afraid of more tests. You test well. Like testing anxiety is a thing, but you also have to recognize at a certain point that like even with testing anxiety, you test well. Mm -hmm. And the MCAT is a test like any other. Yes, it's a big deal, but you can study for it. And your your last two years of college are studying for the MCAT. So why would you go to an accelerated program that robs you of the ability to showcase what you can do best, right? And just gives you direct entry into a program. Plus, what happens if you do change your mind? You're not locked in, right? Realistically, too, you're applying to a school that you likely are not going to get accepted to. You're going to get accepted to the college, but you may not get accepted to the, their BSMD program. Do you really want to go to Kansas? Right? Are you going to be happy there if it's not the BSMD program? Also, if you're not going to be happy at that school if you didn't get into the BSMD program, what is suddenly going to change? Right? Kansas isn't going to suddenly build a Starbucks. Right, because you got accepted to the BSMD program. You know what I'm saying? There's no Starbucks in Kansas. Wow. There, there is a Starbucks. But you see my point, right? It's not going to suddenly become like this urbane wonderland of all the things that you want it to be, right? Like it's like the campus, the physical nature of campus, and the physical things that you don't like about that school aren't going anywhere. Yeah. Right. You're just you're applying because of the name brand. Um, and of course, there's a the classic: Do you really trust a doctor who skipped a year of college? like do would you would you trust a healthcare provider who took the short way you know there should be an anti-psmd yeah a doctor who skipped a year of college but i mean it's a valid concern valid concern right like we're laughing but it's real Uh, there's no mcat there either so yep there's no yeah this doctor never took the mcat like, is it, is it, right? That's a little strange. Isn't it like legal? Like that's how it works. I that's thought how like, it works. Yeah. Oh. It is a direct entry program. Not every BSMD program is the same. There are some DO programs where like you still take the MCAT and it's a, you. You are like your level of degree is different, or like you take an extra year off to just do the MCAT. But as long as you take that year, it doesn't matter what your score is; they'll accept you. Things like that. But again, still like the the fact that these loopholes have to exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and again, that's like, this is me recognizing my bias. Like, yes, I'm making a very good argument about it. But then talk to your friends who are applying to BSMB programs and ask them why they're applying, right? They'll come up with very good arguments and very good reasons why, you know? Mm-hmm. They all want to do it. Like, people, people are passionate about it. These why these programs exist, and that's why they continue to be popular, is because people see value in them, mm-hmm. and they see a lot of growth and potential out of there. For many people... BSMD programs are a way of giving them an honors type program, right? Or, like, I'm trying to think of a good example. There are students in high school who are already doing graduate level work, especially at LASA. Like, Nisha Vishag just published a huge science paper, right? And her name is first on that paper. At this point, high school is a formality for her. You know what I mean? There, and to a certain extent, college will also be a formality for her. Yeah. Right? 
there are there, those type of people to exist. And for those types of people, maybe a BSMD program is the right path. I don't necessarily agree with that ethos, but that's the direction that they're coming from. That's the argument that they're making, yeah. is that I'm already at this level. This isn't an ego thing. This isn't a bragging thing. Look at the work that I am doing and the work that I am capable of doing. Maybe a BSMD program is right for that kind of person because they can get to the where they want to be faster. I have to go. That's okay. But this was very interesting.